Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Afsani Beshlash came to the U.S. from Iran after the Iranian Revolution. She's the former treasurer of the World Bank. Barron's Magazine says she's one of the 100 most influential women in U.S. finance. And she's a minor investor in Ozzy Media Incorporated, the producer of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Afsani Beshlas, thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show. Carlos, I'm so excited to be with you today. It's nice to see you. Are you in D.C. or where are you today? I am in D.C., in fact, today. Uh, so, so you are somewhere with a lot of people around you. I, I am, I am, I am. We have our own little family here, uh, our safe family. Uh, as I'm in Mountain View, which you know where that is, and uh, we're, we're right in downtown. And it's interesting, we've turned our offices into a little studio. So if you were to come and see it, uh, uh, you would smile. We've kind of, uh, we, we've, it's, it's been nice since, um, I would say, mid-July, we've been filming. And um, we've typically been doing it on Thursdays and Fridays, and it's really, it's had a nice feel to it. And I think the fact that people have been at home um, maybe has allowed them to kind of spend more time with us, which has been good too. Absolutely. I think uh, people are like getting to be desperate for the interact human interaction. So um, even if it's, you know, on the air, so whichever way. <laughs> you, you know, that's so funny. I, like, I wonder when we will all get back to seeing each other. Because I think if you had asked me in March, I definitely assumed that by summertime, we'd be all back together. And now I think my mind drifts towards the second half of next year, as crazy as that sounds. But but what do you think? What, what is your thinking about when we will actually be together on some regular basis? I agree with you completely. I think it is uh, in the summer, late spring, early summer of uh, next year. So it means I went to my office. I've not, you've been going regularly. I go from time to time. And the first time I went there was um, about a month ago. And it was such a strange feeling. It was like you go and like time had stopped, right? My desk as I left it. Um, 
And it felt so terrible because you want to clean your desk, you want to get rid of stuff that is no longer relevant, right? I mean, it was like, and I then talked to my colleagues and I said, you really have to go in, not because we want you to work there, but you will find it very strange to go 18 months later to what you left on your desk 18 months psychologically. It will just be, um, I think, psychologically a negative force if you go in and then see this piece of paper on your desk from 18 months ago. It will just feel very bizarre. Even after like five months, it felt very bizarre. Um, and so um, it's been really giving me a feeling of normalcy sometimes going into the office. You know, they're very, some people come in if they want to, some, you know, a lot of people work from home. And I work mainly from home, but just going in gives you that feeling of normalcy, like you were saying. Yeah, I needed that. I would say even before we started doing the show, I would say starting probably in about June, uh, Samir and I would come in occasionally. And there was something good about having a different location. And, and not even a different location, but if I'm honest, traveling even just a few minutes from one place to another. Because there were lots of days where I would get up in the morning and I would sit at the little dining room table and then not move almost all day. And so even just getting outside and in the car and traveling five, 10 minutes was, uh, I don't know, was a value, was was, uh, was was a good, good, good thing. Huge. And one other thing I did um, last week, which you may want to think about, I don't know if you have one of these stand-up desks. I have one in the office. I didn't have one at home. So, um, so I got one at home. And I've been doing, it's not today, but all the other meetings I've been doing has been mainly on the stand-up desk. Uh, and the Zooms, and it feels better because sitting for, you know, eight hours with little, it's going to kill you, so. Interesting. You know, I, I, I wonder if I'd be good with the stand-up. We have a number of colleagues who do do it. I probably would be. That probably would be good for me. I've even seen the people who have the um, little treadmills. Yes, yes. This is so that you exercise. But this, you know, this is even if you don't exercise standing versus sitting and it's like you said, you get in the car and you go for 10 minutes. It's the same thing, except, you know, you could do one meeting sitting, one meeting standing. It's like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing is I have a friend of mine who's got three little ones. And my job uh, now is to text she and her husband every couple of days and remind them to go for a walk. So I've agreed to do that. So I'm 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 the, I'm the walker whisperer. So I remind them to go on their walks and. uh and that's, and that's my job. So that's the other thing that I know a number of people have been doing is if they can, um, having a conversation, you know, while they walk or just taking a little bit more time in neighborhoods, which is good too. Yeah. So when you finally can come to DC, we have a lot of really good walks and hikes around here. We can take you. And I'm sure you have lovely ones where you are, but it must be the, the, the fire must be terrible, no? Can you smell it where you are? Yeah, you can not only smell it, but you can see it. I would say that the sky is discolored almost, I say like in the 80s, they used to have all those kind of uh, special TV movies. I don't know if you remember, they used to have those like TV movies, like End of the World or War of the World movies. And it's like out of one of those movies from the 80s that they used to have where the sky is kind of weirdly colored and you kind of walk outside and you look out and you wonder what happened. I guess the aliens are here now and something's happening. So uh, hopefully it dissipates before too long, but it's, uh, yeah, it's different. It's definitely different the last 
last couple of uh, last couple of days. And do you think people will leave California, or this is just you know? I mean, California has the fires, Arizona has the water shortage, Texas has the water shortage. Or do you think this is more? This is a bigger issue this time. Oh, you know that's interesting. Uh, um, the, the the short answer is that I think people will leave, and then I think in a in a several months a whole group of people will come back. And I think there are kind of a couple of interesting factors going on. Um, uh, one is, I think no one knows what the time frame is. Right. And so I think that's been that's been part of it. Right. Two is that though, I think that the companies, some of the companies in California are healthier than companies in other parts right. uh, of the country. And so I think that that also is going to create some inbound, even though people don't have to be. Uh, in person, I think that's going to create a little bit of inbound. But then there was a really interesting um, piece that I saw a friend write um, about New York. And it was talking about all the people who were leaving uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn and New York. And, and, and they were basically saying good riddance because every time people leave New York, it kind of allows the young people to come and create new things. And he said whether it's hip hop or whether it's right. video games or whether it's a new TV industry – and I think that that is going to become kind of a conversation in a lot of cities where lots of people have um, have fled. I think that will happen, including kind of California, because I remember in the last recession um, or actually recession before last, the early 2000s. And then as California started to come back and Arnold Schwarzenegger got elected as governor, uh, he actually did a very clever ad with his wife, Maria, where uh, they talked about California is coming back and you should return. And, um, you know, I still think California has a, um, I remember as a kid growing up in Miami, California just sounded like a magical place. It sounded like a place you should get to go. And I, I still think it has some of that, um, some of that fairy dust. It still definitely does. And like you said, I think that's a really good analogy. Some people will leave and some people will come in. Do you stay in close touch with uh, friends and family in Iran anymore? And and is the situation there in terms of COVID any different than the situation we see in the U.S.? Uh, you know, I don't stay close, but my mom does. And uh, from what I hear from her, um, it is really bad there because... Um, they have a high incidence. If you, uh, what happened is in the very beginning of COVID, they had direct flights to China, which they always continued. They never stopped the direct flights between China. And, so it came to Iran fairly early, um, like it went to Europe at about the same time. And then two or three things happened. Um, uh, they, I think, continued to um, because of the sanctions and things like that, they did not have access to masks. They had actually given all their masks to the Chinese as a sign of friendship and all their ventilators and whatever when the Chinese started getting sick. So they were left with nothing and then they had to go into the black market and get stuff. So people have been really suffering. And what I heard is that you know, a lot of people lost their houses. So they will, you know how we have uh, Airbnb and you go and rent an apartment? They rent... Uh, space to sleep on someone's roof because they have lost their house. There is no public housing or uh, housing for people who have lost their house. So they, it's really sad. Uh, cancer drugs, none. So kids dying from cancer. So this has been, COVID has been like a plague there. And then the other thing that um, I'm hearing also based on day-to-day um, -day work that we're concerned about is, as you well know, in Africa and in Latin America, 
where, you know, despite all the political issues, poverty was reduced. And in India, of course, uh, South Asia, and, um, and a lot of development has happened the last 20 years. The question is how much of that has gotten erased and will stay erased. Um, so if you take China out and Korea, Taiwan, you know, those kinds of economies out to, uh, with Vietnam, uh, these other countries, and we read about India a lot, what we don't read is like the depth of what's going on in LATAM and in Africa, where um, there has been, you know, Africa, there's more distance. So it, the numbers may not be big, but the impact on poverty has been huge. How does that play out exactly? I can guess, but just so I don't guess, like literally, how does that play out? Are you saying that COVID and fears have stopped all economic activity and therefore even more people don't have work and even more people don't have money for food and for basics? Or has it played out in some other way? I think in two ways. The first way is exactly the way you said it. So um, some of these countries put in place the same thing as the U.S. Now, the reason U.S. and Europe did put those um, acts in place, which was to close down every business and ask everyone to stay home, was because there were not there was not enough equipment to deal with a lot of people getting sick, right? Well, if you go into many Afri- poor, low-income African countries, they never had, I, you know, maybe they had a few ICU beds. So if you did get sick, there was no question that you would not, get an ICU bed, you would not get access to a ventilator, you would not get access to the drugs. That's still the case today as we speak. So they got um, hurt in two ways. One is that their economic activity stopped, but the positive side of it did not work because, you know, it wasn't like you fewer people got sick, so, so, you know, there was less stress on the hospitals. There was nothing to put stress on because they didn't have the resources in the first place. So the question um, that is posed is what would have been the right policy in those situations? Obviously, India uh, put in place very drastic actions. And now that they're reducing that drastic action, the number of people getting sick and the number of people dying um, is very high. And there seems to be, I mean, you know, I'm not a doctor, but there seems to be some genetic element also in terms of um, the number of people dying from COVID, right, with different Genetics seems to be affecting people differently as well as pre-existing conditions that we talk about here. Um, so, so the first part was exactly what you said, um, Carlos, which is lack of access, no economic activity. So, you know, economic activity stops. The second way that it played out is that if they were selling goods to somebody else, that somebody else was not buying those goods. So that became a problem. And since so much of the economy is based on, you know, people selling things on the street or selling in very small shops, um, that was affected even more. And then last but not least, obviously, the question I think to think about is how much of the aid going from U.S. and Europe was impacted or is getting impacted for political reasons and economic reasons. And how does that impact this country? So there's a lot of factors going on, both from a local point and from an international point that is impacting them. So, so if Sonny, which it's actually interesting to think about because in the stock market here in the U.S., you've seen several companies um, not only not struggle, but actually do better. Apple's picked up probably a trillion dollars in market cap, literally, right? And, and Amazon and Tesla and others have, 
have done unusually uh, well, in addition to DoorDash and Peloton and Zoom and, and the rest. But but what if we thought about it in terms of countries? And I hate almost thinking about that, but but if you had to, which countries at the end of this will likely end up being stronger economically and which countries are going to be most impacted uh, economically? So um, from what we have seen so far is basically if you go into the um, East Asian countries at the wealthier um, end, you have Korea, you have uh, also Taiwan, and then you have country like China. They were very fast. They have had um, pandemics before. And people did not think it's a stigma to wear the masks. And so that large mask wearing started pretty early compared to the West, right? Europe and the US. And um, the governments were also up to speed in moving fast to put a stop to things and have been much better with tracing and having the technology. And since the issues with um, having your private information is not a big deal in some other countries, the whole tracing part of the um, of having a better situation with COVID happened faster in those countries. So those are th- those kinds of countries. But even at Vietnam has done really well. I mean, the cases of COVID in Vietnam is really low. So um, so, and again, that part of that was that they have an autocratic political system that worked. Now, Korea does not, you know, as a, you know, each of these countries has different political systems. So obviously autocratic systems uh, could, in a positive way or a negative way, do good or do bad. But a lot of the countries that have very good systems um, also have been much better. And the kids are going to school. And on top of that, uh, I'm sure you've been reading this, uh, Carlos. Right now in Korea, they're jumping ahead. So they're trying to see how should kids' school uh, books be delivered now that you have, you know, some kids learning from home, some kids coming to school. Here we are in the U.S. reading that, um, you know, in certain states, the whole education system came to a standstill and a lot of schools could not open the last two weeks because the technology was not there. The kids don't have, have computers, but also the systems that we had were set up such that they were not sufficient. Um, And um, the other side is you look at East Asia, Singapore, you know, Korea, and they are doing so much uh, in terms of jumping ahead. So it's almost like they are, I don't want to say taking advantage, but they are going to come out when, you know, you and I were talking a little earlier, 12 months or whenever the time is, and be far ahead of other people. The other point that you made, I think, which is very pertinent, is the whole tech sector, right? Because, you know, whatever, if you look at, people used to say, you know, Warren Buffett invests in the countries, in the companies that he likes, or, you know, in, and or companies that produce the goods that he consumes, like Coke or McDonald's or Seas Candy or Dairy Queen, you know, all of those good, um, very healthy, things and foods and think about it if we were investing in the things that we consume like zoom or you know uh, more uh, computer equipment apple or microsoft uh, to use microsoft teams or whatever it is 
those are the companies that are done well. But again, if you look, who has these big mega uh, companies, tech companies? It is the US, it is China, some other Asian countries, but actually Europe doesn't have too many. You know, try and think about big tech companies in Europe. You have you know, a few of them, um, but they're very limited. So when you look at the value of the markets that you were just talking about, the value of the market in the US on the tech side has gone up while the value, you know, if, for the non-tech stock in S&P, and we look at that, you know, continuously, has either not gone up depending on what you're looking, what measure you're looking at, or gone up very little. Um, and the same phenomena in China or in Korea. Um, where you see that the value of their tech stocks has gone up a lot and the other companies that are built around the pandemic, like you said, food delivery, telemedicine, uh, edtech, those kinds of things. But other kinds of companies have either have got hurt or, um, or got killed. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to take you back a little bit, and I want to give, I'd love for people to hear, even though I know a little bit of it, a little bit of your journey. How did you, how did you end up in economics and finance? Was that, was that a family uh, trade? Was that a given? Uh, how did you, how did you end up as an investor? So, um, so Carlos, you and I have talked a lot about the influence that our families have had on us, our moms in particular, and our dads, you know, and uh, I think in both your family and my family, uh, parents and siblings have been very powerful in both of our lives. And in my life, you know, uh, my father was an educator. A lot of people in my family were educators. And my father ended up, you know, he studied physics, um, did a PhD in law, ended up um, being an educator, both changing the curriculum in uh, in his country, which is Iran, but also um, teaching in university and then eventually running the oldest, largest university in Iran and getting into doing distance learning in the 70s, in the late 70s, so which was kind of early. Uh, so that's kind of the environment I grew up in. And, um, and you know, one of my uncles was a doctor, other uncles and aunts, you know, were in education. Um, and um, so if you go by that, my plan was to maybe studies whatever I ended up studying to probably do a mixture of teaching and some form of economic development so fast forward um, I also was very interested in medicine by the way uh, but I didn't get to do that I was always interested in the sciences and um, and so I ended up uh, going to England for university after a stint in the U.S. as an exchange student in a program called the American Field Service which was wonderful and, um, and in England, you have to choose, unlike in the US, you have to choose your major. So I decided on economics kind of, I don't want to say ad hocly, but it was a, sort of in between sciences and social sciences. You, it was quantitative and was considered more of a science, although I think now that I've been, um, I've been in, um, you know, sort of using it and practicing it for more years, I would, I don't know how much the quantitative side has um, had value versus the qualitative and the behavioral side of it. But um, but the other side is that you learned about the history of economic thought and the social side of uh, um, the economy. So that seemed to be like a nice in-between. And my plan had been to go and teach, by the way, and to, again, work on the economic development in Iran. So that's what the plan was. And... Um, then there was something called the revolution that happened in Iran, and I decided from um, England at Oxford, where I was studying, to to work. And I had a choice to go e- either into, um, actually, as it happened, Basser to teach economics, or I got a job offer from J.P. Morgan to go into finance. And it, the group that I ended up joining after a training program um, was their corporate finance group. And I thought, why don't I learn something new? Because economics in England is very theoretical and it's good to know how the world works. So why don't I go to JP Morgan, learn and, you know, I'll go back to teaching economics. 
Um, so that's how that started. And, uh, and um, I loved, you know, I learned a lot. But I really wanted to do something that had an element of policy and an element of giving back. So I had, um, as I had been studying economics, I had um, also done an internship at the World Bank and fell in love with the World Bank uh, before I went to JP Morgan. So I decided to apply to the World Bank. I got in and I joined as, you know, they have a program where they take 20 people every year and, um, and you eventually get into the management part of the World Bank and uh, as an economist. And so I started uh, as an economist and mainly working on energy, uh, which I had been learning about as an economist at Oxford and at JP Morgan. And um, that was the first part of my career. When you ultimately went to the World Bank, what were you actually doing? Like you were, you were a young woman. Were you in a big building in DC? Were you out in the field, what, what were you doing? So I joined something called the Young Professional Program. I was sitting in a big building in DC and they put you in two assignments, six months each. So my first assignment was in health. I knew nothing about health. I knew nothing about the economics of health. So I worked with some really smart people and within six months, I learned a lot. I ended up writing the first study of financing the health sector in a developing country, I happened to be Senegal. So the World Bank sent me to a few countries, but starting with Senegal, and uh, it was fascinating. I was traveling all over Senegal and Mali and going into the health clinics and looking at how we could improve financing. And the first lesson I learned, uh, I was traveling with our uh, medical doctors, other economists, other anthropologists, you know, other experts who had been doing this for like 25, 30 years. And they were so nice to take me under their wing and teach me a lot, such as when we went into a health center in a very poor city. Um, when we were in Senegal, the doctors showed me, they said, look at the garbage can. And when we looked at the garbage can, there were these little boxes and they were expired boxes of vitamin B12 and it really stuck with me and I said why are they giving you know and the villagers who were coming in to this health center had malaria TB um, you know other kinds of diseases and probably AIDS but um, and and um, and they said because you know the drug companies come in here they sell them their expired drugs and if you get a, a shot of vitamin B12, you feel good for a day or two or whatever. So you feel something has happened. And so these poor villagers were spending a lot of their disposable cash on something which was useless. Um, so the lesson, you know, so you learn a lot about how, um, in fact, um, in Senegal and in many countries, it wasn't financing. There was so much money going in from so many aid organizations into the health sector of Senegal. It was how it was organized and it was the health system that needed to be restructured and how um, the corruption was not Senegalese corruption. It was, it was the pharmaceutical companies that were selling this expired stuff in there. So it was an incredible learning experience. So I spent a lot of time in the field, which was hugely, hugely um, unbelievable experience. And I can't tell you, Carlos, I could not do what I'm doing if, 
it wasn't for those experiences, the friendships that I developed with friends in Senegal, with government officials, with people in the private sector, just, you know, musicians, other people who, you know, I got to meet through Senegalese friends. So that was a very powerful experience. And, and today, Afsani, you manage how much money? Um, at Royal Creek, we manage about $14 billion, much less than I did when I was at the World Bank. So I didn't tell you the story of how I got from energy in, back into finance. So what happened is, trained as an economist, I did energy work, and very early started uh, investing in clean energy. And we were doing solar um, power and wind power at the World Bank early, early. And um, also, I started the Natural Gas Development Group as a backstop because there were no batteries really at that point in time. And you need a backstop if you had a solar plant. And a lot of emerging countries had domestic gas, but they were importing coal. So it wasn't just China and India, but a lot of smaller countries, Bolivia or um, you know, Bangladesh or Pakistan were importing coal also. So, um, so, but they had local gas, which, um, while not perfect, was a better solution. And so, so we were um, expanding both uh, the renewable energy fairly early in these countries and um, also doing a lot of other things in energy efficiency. So that, you know, uh, was really, really interesting. And I um, learned a lot also, but eventually was running that whole part of the business. And, and um, then I went to spend a year at Shell in London used doing you know similar things they had a big research group and we, and they had also something called group planning that you may remember did the scenario planning so they still do scenarios i think at shell uh well they look at the scenarios of the world and i was really interesting experience i came back to the world bank and i think um at that point the u.s treasury had decided world bank can't invest in the energy sector it should be only the private sector multilaterals and dfi should get out of it so I was talking to a friend of mine and saying, I really love doing what I was doing and I'm really not very happy. And he said, why don't you come to the trading floor of the World Bank? So I went on the fixed income trading desk, learned how to do fixed income trading. So that was a very different experience and then learned about derivatives and, you know, learned. So I've been doing private investments, if you think about it, on, on an infrastructure. And from there, I moved to the liquid markets and, you know, Trading that's very different. And um, so I've loved both of those. And at the bank, eventually, you know, I was responsible for the finances of the World Bank, which meant um, borrowing, getting the rating of the World Bank, which uh, was tri AAA, and, um, and investing, um, and um, also investing across all asset classes on our own trading floor, as well as through um, the best um, other firms but also bringing a lot of what we were learning at the World Bank and sharing that with the countries that were investing. So the countries, by the way, could differ, like the Norwegian Oil Fund, which now is one of the largest investors, was one of our uh, countries that we advised. They had just started, I think it was 2000 or 2001, and we were advising them on how to do asset allocation and how to create benchmarks and how to diversify. And of course, now they're teaching other people. Um, and also doing the same thing in countries in Africa, in China, we helped them set up the first trading floor at the central bank. Uh, we worked with the Japanese central bank um, and then the early stages of a number of the sovereign funds uh, that were getting created in a lot of these countries, we advised them. So it was really fun because we were doing, learning, implementing, sharing, and then learning more. So this, I have always loved doing this 
um, cycle of learning and doing and implementing and the policy implications and making sure the policy framework is right so you can get done what you're doing. And so, um, so, so I have very good memories of that time. Uh, Afsani, how much money did you end up managing at the World Bank? No, it started with 20 billion, then 65, uh, then got close to 100 if you added everything, and then 160 billion in derivatives. And so how does someone manage that much money? I mean, for most people, that would almost seem uh, like a plaything. And you were a relatively young woman, I assume, managing that much money. Um, like, like how, did, how did one keep track of that and do that well? Do you not do it well, but you just accept that it's such a big number that you just accept there will be some loss and, and people give it a fancy name, call it friction or the rest? Not really, because, you know, the bank was a real leader in technologies, which is, you know, people may not think of it as a leader in technology. The bank had done the first currency swap before I got there. Um, and um, first user of Bloomberg machines. So I, the, the folklore is that Michael Bloomberg came himself personally to, uh, to train people on the trading desk. So there was a lot of technology embedded, which meant we were creating benchmarks when there weren't any. And so from day one, if you were investing, there was a benchmark. You couldn't, if you lost money, it would be obvious. So this, everything we talk about now, about data science and data and the importance of data was something that was really instilled into us. And frankly, the team that I work with, both the people I work for, the people I work with, uh, you know, unbelievably sophisticated. There were PhDs in physics, PhDs, um, um, in math, who were doing neural networks then. So we were really early on some of these things. And a lot of the star um, um, investment and, um, and other people who were doing derivatives ended up on Wall Street or ended up in countries doing really good work. So That's really interesting. You're saying that in the same way that people often in the military have learned early about the internet or other technology and then have taken that expertise and gone out to kind of build larger companies. You're saying the World Bank, which was a public organization set up to help the poorest countries, was often using the most advanced technology, ironically, Bloomberg terminals and other things at the time, and doing the most complex kind of financial deals that even JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs may not be doing regularly at that time, and that people learned in that environment while working with Senegal and other countries and ultimately took all of that, in some cases, to to build Bloomberg or to build uh, to build other big businesses. Was was the World Bank seen as that kind of creative training ground for for economic leaders around the world, or did this happen kind of in a happenstance way that people would go from learning all these cutting edge techniques in emerging countries to to running big Wall Street groups and investment groups. So Carlos, what was interesting, the two main areas I worked in in the World Bank, one was energy and one was you know, broadly finance. Um, and I started at the bottom and learned my way up you know, the ladder to running those areas. And both areas were super innovative at the World Bank. Um, under Jim Wolfenson, things like health, and thanks to Elaine Wolfenson, who was his wife, <laughs> education and health became super important, as they should have, you know, the social sectors as well. And so 
what was interesting about the World Bank is that it did really attract the best economists, the best thinkers, the best um, uh, generalists, and we got the best training. And like you said, um, it wasn't that we were better, but Wall Street would come in, we would learn what they're doing, and we would trade with them. And they, I don't want to say that, and we could hold our own against uh, you know, some of the most sophisticated trading houses. So, for example, that first currency swap that the bank did, it was between the World Bank and Salomon Brothers. And I think David Svensson of Yale was at Salomon Brothers then. And uh, Marty Libowitz is a great, um, great finance brain, was also at Salomon Brothers. So you could say who developed it. Some people who worked at the World Bank say we developed it. Some people who worked at Salomon, I'm sure will say they developed it, but it was joint um, innovation. So it was a very, very innovative area, whether it was in the field of economics or when as a young person, I was just starting to do so, you know, solar and wind energy. I worked with some of the most sophisticated um, Scandinavian countries and you know, we took that technology and knowledge into emerging markets. Um, I think what, has, what is interesting right now is how can these multilateral organizations continue to attract the best talent? And um, how can they, because the only way we can, you can attract talent is if you can create an environment, like you said, that is innovative. And that is how I found the bank and how, uh, as I said, until I left the bank uh, and Jim Wolfenson was running it, um, that innovation kind of continued in many different areas, including in the social sectors. What challenging, was it challenging for you as a woman and as an Iranian woman to rise up in that? Or was there something about that environment that actually was more welcoming, more inclusive, there was more opportunity for you there than if you had stayed at JP Morgan or if you had gone elsewhere? Um, so by the way, JP Morgan was pretty inclusive at that time, very team oriented and inclusive when I was there. I think I think finance became less and less inclusive and now hopefully we had a very recent um, you know, uh, decision to have the first woman CEO be the head of a bank today, you know, which was very interesting. Uh, but, um, you know, at Citigroup, as you know, so the, I think the, what I, what I was not fully aware of was how, while, while the World Bank environment was inclusive, how hard it was. Because I think if I stopped and thought about it, I would have stopped doing what I'm doing. So in everything that I did, I wouldn't say that it was easy to be a woman. I think a lot of people who worked at the World Bank were born in the US, a lot of people were born in other countries. So the fact that it was diverse was a normal thing. So the, where you came from was a little bit less important, but certainly gender was, um, was an issue and there were very few women who were reaching um, this very the higher levels at the World Bank. By coincidence, I told you that I, one of my first jobs was in energy. My boss was a woman and now she's on my board and she's uh, Dame Diane Julius, um, great um, woman leader in finance and energy. And, uh, and she um, is in England now and was founding member of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, chief economist at Shell and British Airways. Um, chair of Chatham House, Royal Institute of International Affairs, chair of the UCL Council, which is their board on multiple boards, you know, whether it is BP or Roche or Lloyd's or whatever. So she was my first boss 
And, you know, we didn't think too much that uh, being a woman was negative. But then once she left to go to the UK, life changed, I have to say. <laughs> it was not as good. Oh, interesting. Did it get, it got a little tougher uh, after she was gone? Very different. Very, very different. And, you know, I think I had bosses who were male, who were, who were very supportive and very helpful. And they treated everyone the same and others who didn't. So I've had both experiences. And then I traveled obviously across many countries. Um, but the interesting thing is, for example, traveling to Pakistan where being, um, you know, there weren't too many women doing energy uh, at that time. There probably weren't any at that time. There are many more now. And, um, and so, you know, working with the Minister of Energy and very senior government official and people who ran their energy sector, um, they kind of, didn't know where to place me, but they, that was actually fine. And I managed to lead missions into Pakistan. So it was very interesting at that time. I don't know how easy it would be today. China, interestingly, at that time was very male oriented. So uh, one of my colleagues was um, Chinese American and spoke Chinese fluently. And she was unbelievable. And uh, I went with her for my first trip to China when um, China kind of was starting to open up and the Chinese really were less comfortable to have her lead the mission. So there was a man who led the mission because that's, you know, they did not feel as comfortable. So I think at different countries at different times, I think if you went into China and it was a woman now, it would be probably no difference if, you know, absolutely fine. But I think having worked at the, in these different um, countries at different points in time, I saw the change. And, um, and I saw how many women started becoming you know, involved, let's say, in the energy sector. Many more in some of these countries, especially in Asia, compared to the US. We do have women minister, uh, sort of ministers of energy, like Secretary of Energy. You have women running big energy companies. One of the biggest hydro companies in Brazil is run by a woman. And so we don't have that as much in the U.S. So, you know, it's not, uh, we might assume that they are behind in some of these ways, but in fact, a lot has happened over the last 20 years where women have um, risen in some emerging markets and are doing quite well. That's actually interesting. You're right. We would assume it's the opposite. And for, and for an investor like you who's investing or, 14 billion dollars largely in emerging markets it can be interesting because people you've known for years and in many cases people who are young women you're saying actually may have risen up to very senior roles at which you are able to interact with them uh, both professionally and personally Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to do a little a game of rapid fire, if you don't mind. I'd love to hit you with a couple of, of questions um, and get your immediate reaction to them. Who's the most um, Who's the most interesting investor you've ever met? I know you're an investor yourself, but you also invest in other funds, and you also have competed against other investors. Who's the most interesting investor you've ever come across, and why? Um, so I think one of the best investors out there has been. Um, firm called Viking and you know the person who started it is uh, Anders Halverson. Unbelievable process, unbelievable discipline, the best team and very opportunistic and you know evolved over time so it doesn't stay the same what they're doing today uh, but unbelievable investment team but also understanding that the, that the back office and you know all the other things that go in the investment world are important. Um, what is your superpower? Very few people in this life get to be their own boss. They certainly don't get trusted with as much money as you're trusted with. The amount of money you have is more more than the budgets of many countries. You know, what is your superpower, do you think? Why have these people trusted you? And why have you had enough success to keep growing your fund? I think the fact that two things are important in that. One is... Um, Continuous learning. They know that we're continuously learning and in a world that is changing, whatever you knew yesterday may not be good enough. And particularly as we've seen in the last six months, we are all learning a lot of 
skills and a lot of uh, other information that we may or may not have had before. So I think that is one thing. And then the other thing is transparency and sharing. And they know that, you know, what, uh, what they see is uh, what they get. And it may seem like a minor thing, but I think with like anything else, whether it is the media, whether it is what, you know, you've been doing so successfully, Carlos, or in finance, which you've also been doing successfully, or in uh, management consulting, you just have to trust what you see and what, you know, the person you're dealing with or the team that you're dealing with. And then the last uh, but not least uh, is the fact that we are a great team and, you know, a team where we agree, we disagree, we openly discuss things and it is, uh, and they see that. Uh your favorite music? Um, you know, I still like classical music. I know that does not sound uh, maybe too exciting right now, but I started playing the piano, almost decided to play the piano, you know, and, and if I was just relaxing and I wanted to, um, to not think too much about COVID, I would still go back to my old Bach or Mozart, um, you know, uh, pieces and uh, and try to play them very badly now, but that I think is still my preferred uh, music. I haven't evolved so much, even though you know my kids play every kind of music uh, when they're in the house. I have not evolved as much. They would say to you. You you you've kept your music your music uh, consistent. Uh, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? The most embarrassed. Yeah, that's a really great question. So many times I can't think of when I was most embarrassed. Um, I think, you know, there was one time, I've been embarrassed many times, but one time that sticks out is uh, Jim Wolfenson was the president of the World Bank and I worked with him very closely. And I had gone in to see him and we had been doing really, really well in across the whole of the finance um, area that I was running at that time. And I sat in front of Jim and I, you know, and I gave him the performance report across the different things. And there were one or two things that had not gone as well. And I sort of got to them and I was not, I wasn't not transparent. I just, you know, did not emphasize it. And Jim looked at me and sort of said, you know, you should have really started with those. You should have started with what is, it wasn't really bad news, but less good news, and then gone on to the good news. And that has stuck in my head. Um, so sometimes I do <laughs> the opposite now, which is talk too much about the negatives versus the positives. So, uh, but that does start, stick in my mind. I super, I mean, I, I can still feel how hot I'm upset I got. And, uh, and it has stuck in my head. You know, we often hear from a variety of people, but certainly from women, about imposter syndrome. You, do you ever feel that at all? I mean, uh, you're running a big investment group, uh, world-renowned, world-famous. Lots of important people trusted you with their money. Lots of people come to you for advice. Lots of people come to you asking for money. But do you ever feel um, uh, that imposter syndrome? Do you ever feel overwhelmed do you ever say to yourself i'm not sure if i'm up to it or 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 how how do you think about that i think carlos there's a lot of times where i don't know the right answer to the question i think what one thing that i really did learn when i was the first time i managed any team 
is how do I surround myself by people who are much smarter, much better in every way? And that has really served me well because maybe I haven't felt so much of an imposter. I have felt that I'm part of a team. Even if you know I have led a team, I felt more part of it than just being a leader. And I think one of the things that I learned to do was how to get people to be comfortable to disagree or to share their views. And sometimes I've been more successful than other times. But the stronger the people I have worked with, the more comfortable they have been to share their views, obviously. So maybe that is one reason I have not had necessarily the imposter feeling. I have had, you know, um, I've been much more aware, though, Carlos, of the difficulties of being different or being a woman uh, or being a minority and doing what I'm doing. It used to be that I was oblivious to the, uh, I don't know if there's a better way to say it, but people not being very positive if they saw you looking different or being different or your team being diverse. And I find now that it is, Sadly, despite all the rhetoric around us, um, and a lot of things are changing for the better, some things are not changing for the better. And there are meetings I sit in where uh, people do try to make me feel like an imposter. And, and there, you know, I try to make sure that they know I'm not an imposter. <laughs> and, and how direct are you in those, in those cases? What will you do in those cases, and I assume, by the way, that lots of people, including lots of, of women, probably approach you for advice at various times, that, or at least engage you in the conversation. Like, how do you handle those moments, or, or what, what tips would you give to people watching about how to navigate that kind of situation? So I think you have to be really cool, not get excited, not get upset. Just be very respectful and say what you think, but do say what you think. And it was very interesting. And sometimes you have to be quiet, by the way. So, um, so I was giving a speech. I was on a, in a very august panel with George Schultz and Laura Tyson. And this is a number of years ago uh, when Laura was, um, I think, um, economic advisor to President Clinton. So it's quite a few years ago. And George, and I was at the World Bank then. So George Schultz decided to go after the World Bank. And I've forgotten what he had against the World Bank, but he just decided to go against the World Bank. And I happened to be speaking as the senior official of the World Bank. So he went after me. And Laura was a new friend then, and I had just met her. And she's, by the way, another woman who's on my advisory board. I'm very fortunate with the women on, <laughs> on our advisory board and the men we have uh, men too, uh, like Alan Greenspan and Leah Karamat, who are fabulous. But Laura turned to me and whispered to me, you don't have to answer that. And that has quite a few years ago, and that stuck in my head. So what you ask me now, sometimes there are things you just don't have to answer. There are other times where it's appropriate to answer, but always respectful. How much, um, Afsani, do you think, because it's interesting, one of the interesting things about this show is I've talked to a wide range of people, musicians, actors, athletes, etc., and a handful of people have stood out to me as being very comfortable in their skin. I had a very interesting conversation recently with Padma Lakshmi, the, um, uh, the chef and, uh, and the TV presenter uh, and the writer. 
And I found her and everyone who was here found her very comfortable. And I, I was curious about why that was. And I was talking to an actor uh, actually earlier today who, who also had that. And uh, now that I think about it, when I think about you, one of the things that stand out to me is that you feel very comfortable, you feel very solid in a way that I know that many human beings are not. Many of us are not comfortable in our skin and comfortable where we are. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you are, uh, are you as comfortable in your skin as I, as I think you are? And if you are, why do you think that is? Two reasons. One, again, you and I ha- share the fact that we um, had a family that, have, uh, that made us feel very secure. So even when there was a lot of change and a lot of problems around us, I think um, I think um, I had that incredible security uh, that came from my family. My father started taking me on hikes when I was very young. So I was like 12 years old, 13 years old. And these hikes were with his friends. So he was, you know, president of the university, but his other friends were like, you know, other, they were mainly intellectuals. And they started taking me seriously. Like to ask me a question, I would have absolutely no idea what they were talking about. Or they would recite some Persian poetry or French poetry or English poetry. They knew economics. They were all, you know, they all had like three advanced degrees. Um, and I walked with them and just listened. So I was this young woman. And and um, that sort of, you know, when I look back and say, why am I comfortable? I think just being around people who are really smart and gave me a chance to talk and to be heard and did not demean me, I think gave me a lot of security. So when later on, there are some people who might have tried to do that, it did not really impact me the same way I've seen some other friends, you know, other women or other friends be so impacted by negative experiences. I think the other thing is I came to the US all alone, you know, I was 16 and I came here as an exchange student, it was a big shock to the system. <laughs> And uh, I think that also was an incredible learning experience. I loved it. I came to Concord, Mass, lived with the most incredible family, uh, taught, at, taught at MIT and you know, met the most interesting people who are still very good friends. But it was not an easy experience to come from the loving bosom of your family, you know, where everyone is hugging everyone to New England, which has a different culture. And I had to learn that culture and perform in that culture. And, um, and um, it was, you know, great experience. So I think putting, you know, resilience doesn't just come or comfort, if you call it whatever word we like to call it, doesn't just come from no experience. I think you have to have hardship. You have to have role models. You have to have people in your life who do mentor you and do help you and do give you good advice. And, um, and then, you know, hope for the best. But it's kind of interesting because... As you said, um, my jobs have required enormous amount of stress, but I have, um, I perform particularly well under stress. So I'm not like a pitcher, like my, you know, older son uh, was a pitcher. I'm not, I don't have that kind of uh, uh, mentality, but I can, I can do all right under stress. I, I love that. All right, a few more quick questions, and then I know they're gonna make me let you go. Give me one, two, or three companies that many people may not know about, but that you think are going to be terrific investments for whatever reason over the next one, two, three, four, five years. 
What should we keep our eye on? You know, you as someone who doesn't just invest in the U.S., but you invest all around the world. You've been investing for years. You invested the World Bank's money. You've invested your own money. You've invested your fund's money. Give me a couple of, 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 of companies to keep our eye on. Apart from Aussie, of course. Apart from Aussie, um, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. You know, um, great company, great founder and great uh, founders and great team, everyone uh, there. Um, I think, um, you know, there is, it's hard to sort of think of two or three companies. Where I'm particularly excited um, are companies that are uh, relatively in sort of relative startup mode because we're going through so much change as we're sitting here uh, today where our lives are changing. And so you need to have companies that will be there the next 10 years versus the last 10 years. So if you look, um, you know, companies that are changing the health um, system delivery, like Devoted, um, you know, uh, or companies that are, really trying to reduce both energy consumption by not um, having fruit and vegetables frozen um, and transported over long distances, uh, but also make sure that you don't waste food like Appeal. Um, and these are companies that may not be household names right now, but these are companies that are smaller, that, uh, that are growing super fast, unbelievable leadership, and um, they are the future. So the areas where I get excited, uh, Carlos, is a lot of um, companies that are either in edtech, and I was excited about that before COVID, but I think coming out of COVID, having um, young kids have access to education, access to broadband, and access to equal opportunity to get educated will be very important in our country and in every other country. So that's some area, that's an area that we look at in uh, Rock Creek, but also I'm personally interested in. And then um, health, again, equitable health and access to equitable health systems is really important, but also the other side, which is how do you get drugs um, to people cheaply and fast. And, um, and I think I'm really excited about that. I'm very fortunate at this point in time to be on the board of Gavi, which is the Global Alliance for Vaccines. And the leadership there, um, you know, Seth, Barkley, who's the, um, who's the CEO there, unbelievable. And that experience that Gavi has developed over the last 20 years, taking that to now um, COVID through the, um, and making sure that uh, vaccines are delivered in a equitable way to everyone in um, an affordable way will be so important. So things that will both be good investments, but also will make the world a better place, I think, are the things that at this point in time, I'm really excited about. I, I love all of those. A couple more quick ones that I definitely, um, what's the most important thing you've learned about making change happen? People often don't wanna just be the recipients of change, they wanna actually be change makers, but it's hard, I realize it's not easy. What's the single best piece of advice you would give someone about how to make some important change happen? I think we're made differently. Some people love change and some people really don't like change. So it, you can't just have that kind of advice for everybody. For those who don't love it, I think you have to demonstrate why the change is going to get them to a better place. So it is a long-winded answer. And, um, and I think for those people 
you have to convince and you have to work together to look at the um, the negative and the positive. But I'm someone who's been very comfortable around change. And, um, and I think it's really good to work with people who are not as comfortable around change because, you know, they make sure that we're both wiser. Interesting. I, I like that as well. Um, what's the most interesting thing you've learned about how to dream fearlessly? Um, you know, we get one life and uh, we, it goes by much faster than we expect when, you know, we were 15 or 16 or 17. So what is there to lose? You know, the most valuable thing we have is our life and our loved ones. So do the best you can and do what you really care about and do what you're passionate about because we only get one chance. And what do you say to people who are dreaming fearlessly, they're trying their best, but they're starting to lose motivation. Things aren't going as well as they wanted to. Um, they put in tons of effort and they're struggling. What do you say, what have you done if you've had those moments where you know you found yourself struggling, wavering, maybe a little uh, demotivated? Carlos, I think it's perseverance, which is really easy to say and really hard to do. It is really when you're in a difficult situation not to give up if you believe in something, because it will turn around, times do change, everything goes in cycles, and if you can persevere and get to the other side, you will do you will do incredibly well, whatever it is that you have put your mind to. So I think that perseverance is really, really important, never to give up on whatever it is that you really care about. And Afsani, last question, go back and talk to young Afsani. And, 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 and what are you gonna tell her? You're having, you're having tea with her. Give her a little advice. And at least one of the pieces of advice, if you give her several, has to be, we love on this show, talking about love and marriage and relationships with everybody from football stars to writers. You know, give her a little bit of advice, give her a little bit of life advice on whatever you wanna give her, but include at least one piece of advice for her about, about love and relationships. So life is about love and relationships and love is about you know doing what you like doing. And the most important thing, which I did not necessarily do when I was uh, uh, younger, which I really believe in right now, is that sort of balance because I always work always came first and I think you know all the other questions you asked me if you're a woman you had to be really good at what you were doing to be taken seriously and I think if I had done 20% less it would have been equally good so that extra 20% that really puts a lot of stress and takes away from what you said you know uh, love and family and other things that we love doing um, is really not necessary, I think, in retrospect. And so, you know, I don't want to call it life-work balance. It's really balance and, um, and having some sort of balance, whatever is right for you, not what other people tell you, but whatever is right for you. And um, I really believe in that now. I love that. I love that. I love that. And then uh, final question. Uh, what would surprise people about you? Even those who may think that they know you a little bit, what would, what would surprise them to find out about you? I'm not as much of a nerd as I seem to be. I love that. You're saying you're a TikTok girl. <laughs> I should uh, learn how to use TikTok. I haven't yet. But 
there's there's a there's a great meme on um uh on on TikTok about uh people who say, you know, I my spouse thought that she was marrying this person or he was marrying this person, but instead they got this person. And uh and uh uh, and there, there's there's a liveliness uh, there's a liveliness to it. Um, Afsani, um, I love this. I hope you will come back again and again. Thank you, Carlos, and thank you so much for doing what you're doing. And I really value our friendship, but also I really value what you're doing and how you're changing the face of media and and uh, and all the good stuff that you and your team do every day. Thank you for including me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Please let your friends know they can find us on the iHeartRadio app and iTunes. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.